Will you please open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel? I'll be reading from chapter 7, verses 1 through 22. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel, from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people? Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise, and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. You know, I I think it's probably self-evident that we struggle with telling the truth. I mean, we all tend to make promises that we can't keep, we, um, we fabricate, we exaggerate, we obfuscate, we misstate. I mean, we just seem to struggle, whether it's on resumes or telling histories or giving stories. We just tend to adjust and twist and bend and omit. I mean, we, we've all been stung by 
things that people have promised to us that have not come to be, or perhaps the, the promises that we have made, perhaps even within our marriages. We just have trouble telling the truth. And it's at this point that I see such a difference with God, that God does speak the truth, that he speaks in a way uh, that he fulfills, that he makes promises and he keeps them. One of the first verses I ever learned as a new Christian was in Numbers. It said that God is not a man that he should, that he should speak, and he's not a, or God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? He keeps his promises. And we see in this chapter just loads of promises that God makes to us. And we're going to see them ultimately fulfilled. They're all going to be yes to us. So in this story of David, it's, it, this is a much more, it's heavily theological. It's a high point in the Old Testament. So we're going to look at it in kind of three movements, right? David makes a move. He wants to make a plan for God. He's going to plan to build a house for God. That's the first thing we see really in the first seven verses. David wants to make a plan. And then we're going to see that God says no to the plan because God has a better plan. We're going to see that in verses 8 all the way through 17. And then we're going to see that David says yes to God's plan. David says, yes, that's what I want. Even though it wasn't my plan, I want that plan. And he gives thanks to God. So kind of three movements in this text. The first movement, as I said, though, is, is David wants to make a plan. Now, you see, you know where we are in the story. The story is that, that David is anointed king, that God has consolidated the nation under David right now. He's cons- the enemies are subdued at this point. Right? And the Ark of the Covenant is now, the presence of God is now among the people. So with the enemies subdued, subdued and the Ark in Jerusalem, it says in the first line, God gave rest to his people. Now this isn't just a Saturday. This is a theological statement reminding you of Genesis that when God was with his people, he gave them rest, right? At the end of creation, it said God rested, and God rested with his people. So what we're to see here is it's like a partial fulfillment. God, way back in the book of Genesis, promised we'd have an eternal rest. We'd have a salvation. And and there's a partial move. Now God is back among his people, and they are resting. And so it's in this rest that David struggles with the incongruity of a human king, David, living in a palace, and a divine king living in a tent. Here David's got digs, that have imported cedar, and God is in a tent that's about 400 years old at the time. And so David wants to do something, and so he appeals to Nathan. This is pretty humble of David. Most kings in the ancient Near East would just make a decision to build a temple. But he appeals to Nathan, and he says he's struggling over the Lord being, the presence of God being in a tent. And so David says, do what is in your heart to do. Nathan knows that David has been anointed with the Spirit. And so he's saying, just basically, if you're led by God, then walk out that leading. Now, Nathan is a prophet. He's kind of the country's pastor at this point. He's an advocate. He's a counselor to David. And what I want you to see, though, is in David's heart, I think it's a godly intention. I I think David really wants to do the right thing. I, I think he does feel like, God, you've been so kind to me. 
I want to respond with grace to you. But God says no. And God begins to ask those questions in 4 to 7 of how, didn't I travel with you? Haven't I been with Israel the whole time? When you didn't have a place, I didn't have a place. When you were pilgrims, I was a pilgrim God. He says, will you build a house for me? Now, I just want to stop here for a minute, just at this point, and ask you, because this is a point of challenge for us, that when we pray or when we think about doing something for God and things don't work out, we can tend to fight with this idea that God's opposing us. You look at David, right? David's intentions were good. They were godly. They were right. They were Godward. And God says no. I mean, how many times has the plan of God gone crosswise over your desires and intentions? I mean, when you've really had a desire to do a right thing or a godly thing and it hasn't come to fruition. Or how many times have you, you prayed for something or acted towards someone with good intent, but it hasn't happened? <clears throat> May have been a righteous thing. Maybe you desire a godly marriage. Maybe you have prayed for someone who's sick. Maybe you've sought to do something in ministry, and it has just fallen apart. And there's <clears throat> a degree of discouragement, perhaps confusion. God, why are you seemingly opposing me? And I want you to see in this story that, that God's plans are greater than our plans. That, that even though he says no to us, uh, there might be something greater. I forget where I read this, but it was an expression. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot has a, a version of it, but I heard it differently, and that is that in his refusals, are often his greatest blessings. That, that sometimes God refuses us because there's something greater on the other side. I mean, if you've been a Christian long, I think you may have prayed for things, you've desired things, you've wanted things, and you haven't gotten them, and you've initially been discouraged, but then in time, you think, thank you, God, that I didn't get that. I mean, I mean I'm thankful that from my vantage point, from the limited view that I had, I thought this would be good, but now I see that it's not. Thank you for doing that. So remember, when, when God answers with a no, it's often merciful. And we're going to see it in this case, because David had a plan, and God said no. But what was, David, what was God's plan? Well, this is where we shift to verse 8, where, where God then begins to continue to speak to David through Nathan. Longest speech of God since Mount Sinai. So God is continuing, and God's going to lay out his plan. He says, hey, David, you wanted to build me a house, I'm going to build you a house. Now, this is what we call the Davidic covenant. Uh, you won't find the word covenant in, the, in this text, but other scriptures in 2 Samuel chapter 23 and Psalm 89 and 132 speaks to this exchange as a covenant. And in this covenant that God is making with David, he's establishing this relationship that David is now to him a son and that God will be to him a father. You know, scholars will say this is the high water mark. That in this promise that we read, all those promises of God, you have the promise that salvation will go out to the ends of the world. It, it, that's what a covenant is, right? A covenant of marriage is promise. We make promises for better or for worse, richer or for poorer, in sickness and health. I pledge myself to you. This is what God is doing for us. God is pledging himself to us through his servant David. And you see all the promises, right? You see a house he's going to build for David. It's not four walls and a roof. It's a household. It's a dynasty, like the house of Windsor for the British royal family. Uh, he's going to have a son. He promises a son. 
He promises a kingdom. He promises a throne. Now, if I were to simplify all these promises, I, I think you can probably figure out when did God answer these promises. Well, he probably answered many of them with Solomon, David's son, right? I mean, he was a son, and, and he did receive the kingdom, and he was given a throne. And you'll also see that, that, this, that the immediate fulfillment of this promise being Solomon is seen in verse, in verse 13 and 14, where he says, And when my son commits iniquity, when my son sins, I will not take my steadfast love from him as I did with Saul. This is different now, right? Because Saul sinned against God, and he was cut out, but not so David and his descendants. This is a unilateral move by God towards us. It's a whole different order. He says, I will not take my love for him, from him. Now, if you know the history of Israel, you know that David had a son, Solomon, and Solomon had a son, Rehoboam, and Rehoboam had sons, and it went all the way down for about 400 years. And the last king in the line of David, at least it was recorded before the exile to Babylon, that is when the whole nation was conquered by Babylon and taken, was Zedekiah. And Zedekiah was a king who sinned against God. And the Babylonian army punished him by the hand of God. And the Babylonian army, the last thing, Zedekiah was forced to watch the killing of his two sons and his own eyes were plucked out and he was taken to Babylon. That was the last king in the line of David. And so we're left wondering, well, what happened to the promises? You heard the promises. There were eternal promises. In 13 and 16, you see an eternal throne, an eternal kingdom. And so the people were wondering, God, when are you going to fulfill this promise? When is the son of David going to come? Now, I want you to understand that prophecy in the Old Testament is often multi-layered. It, it, it could be seen like a, one of those old telescopes, you know, that you can look at something and you can see its nearness, but then you can extend it out, and you see clarity to things that are happening later in the future. So you see both near, which we see here in King Solomon, fulfilling some of these promises, but from verse 12 on, there seems to pick up an eternal dimension to these promises. So you take the telescope out, and so we see here that the prophets were still waiting for a son of David to come. They knew Solomon was not it. They knew Zedekiah was not it. And so they're still looking. And so in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Amos, you see this increasing clarity to, no, Israel, keep your hope alive. A son is going to come. We see it in Isaiah 9. We always read this at Christmas, but, but listen to how it relates to this promise to David. He says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now here's what it says. Of the increase of his government, this child, and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. So do you see? Isaiah is waiting for that son to come. We see the same thing in Amos 9. In that day I'll raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it in the days of old. So Amos is encouraging the people, he's going to raise up the son of David and he will repair what was broken. We see it in Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So what we see here in this passage is that God is making a promise. 
And the prophets are keeping the hope alive of people. When is the sun coming? When is the sun coming? We see that death did not annul the promise as it passed through this line of, of kings. We see that sin didn't thwart the promise. And we're going to see that, that delay doesn't exhaust the promise. You know, David is a type for us right here. David is a type of Messiah. He's a type of king. Think about the promises of God in the Old Testament. First promise was made to Adam and Eve. That she would have what? A son. And the son would crush the head of the serpent. That was a promise made. Now that promise was also extended uh, to Abraham. Abraham was told he too would have a son. And through him, his son, all the nations would be blessed. And now we come to David. What has he promised? Surprise? He has promised a son. And in his son, an eternal kingdom will be forged. So when does he come? Well, does it surprise you that when Gabriel... The angel appeared to Mary that he said these words. He says, your son will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom, there will be no end. It will be eternal. Eight times in 2 Samuel 7, it's eternal. It's forever. It's eternal. He's getting... the angel says this to Mary. Is it surprising that the angel chose shepherds to go to? Was David not a shepherd? Does Jesus himself not say, I'm the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep? If you were to turn to the book of Matthew, the very first line, Jesus Christ, the son of whom? Abraham and David. Why? The covenant with Abraham was a son would come forth and bless the nation. David, the son would come and establish a kingdom. So Matthew is showing in a lineage this is the identity of Christ. We don't make much of lineages. You know, they kind of don't rock our world too much. But back then, it established an identity. And so Matthew is telling his people, this is the Messiah, the son of David that was to come. How about in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he started speaking and teaching and doing miracles. You know what the people said? Could this be the son of David? So the people were looking. Or how about blind Bartimaeus? Have mercy on me, son of David. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, what did they say? Hosanna to the son of David. Or Jesus even said that he was the Lord of David. I mean, it's incredible. God has answered yes to the promise that the son would come. What do we do with this? You know, God's plan was to bring forth a son, an eternal son, through a human father, through David, or through the human line, David, through a mother. What do we do with this? What do we think about God's promises? Well, let me just draw your mind to a couple things here. First off, I want you to see that God's promises are certain even in times of struggle and silence. Listen, God's promises for you are certain in terms of silence and suffering. It shouldn't surprise you. It's kind of ironic, actually, that most biblical scholars think that the books of 1 and 2 Samuel were compiled during the time of the exile in Babylon. And what that means is this. David had written it, but they compiled it. They put it together in one book during their time of exile. Now, when the nation of Israel was taken out of Israel and taken to what would be modern-day Iraq in Babylon, they were seemingly out of the land and out of the promises. They were out of the will of God, you'd think. But there was that group of people that, no, God will bring us back to the land. God will honor his promise. Even though our circumstances right now, we are suffering greatly, his promises remain certain. 
And then after they were returned to the land, the last prophet, Malachi, and then there was a silence for, for 400 years. Where's God? Are his promises still there? Well, the angel Gabriel came and told Mary, yes, the promises are still certain. So do you see that even in silence and suffering, the promises of God remain? Now, many of you are in that. You're, you're suffering right now, perhaps acutely in a marriage or in some other relationship. You're wondering, can I trust God? Because right now I don't feel like he loves me because my life is fairly challenging. But it's this, it's this, it is at this point that we have to trust most. Because in our suffering, it doesn't deny the certainty of his promises or the silence of God. For 400 years, Israel waited for the promise to be fulfilled. It was silent. There was no prophetic voice in the land. And yet, then it came. So if you're in a time of silence where you feel like I'm speaking to God, I'm praying to God, but I just don't think that he hears me. I'm not getting any sort of sense or feeling that he hears me. Let me encourage you. The promises of God are certain in silence. In fact, Paul writes it this way. He says, all the promises of God are yes in Christ. Now that God has given to us Christ, and has raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, the promises are yes. So folks, hang on to the promises. He's given you precious promises. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll care for you. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. I mean, all these promises, they are to just be enjoyed by us, to consider like, like precious gems in our hands that we just kind of look through. But not only are the promises of God certain in times of suffering, these promises of God, they're also unbreakable. I, I mean, like, like links of an iron chain hooked Together, God promised to Adam and Eve. He promised to Noah. He promised to Abraham. He promised to Moses. He promised to Joshua. He promised to Samuel. He promised to David. We've seen these promises continue, and he promises to Christ. Now he promises to the church. that The promises of God are unbreakable. When you look at a passage like this, God is writing history in our passage. He says, this is what's happened. By the way, this is what's going to happen that God will be about bringing a great end for his people. I mean, Jesus Christ, being raised up as the eternal son, has trampled upon death with his death. That's why we sang it. There is no fear of death for us. He's trampled it for us. The true son has come. And that's why Paul says that now God has raised him from the dead and has seated him at the right hand of God, far above rule, authority, power, and dominion, for us, for the church. It's not just as a testimony of his greatness, but Christ reigns for us. Isn't that amazing? He's serving us from the right hand of God. But then the third thing I would say about his promises is God's promises are, are certain and sure in times of struggle. God's promises are unbreakable. But God's promises are also rooted in grace. I want to draw your mind back to verse 8. You know, sometimes, you know, you look at David, and David says, hey, I'm going to build a house for God. Now, some scholars think that David is kind of being a little bit arrogant, you know, in the sense of, hey, God, you've done some stuff for me. Let me do some stuff for you kind of thing. Some people see it that way. I don't. I don't. But what, to David's word of wanting to build a house for God, God says this. He says, I took you when you were following sheep in the pasture, and I made you prince among the people. 23 times in this passage, all the action verbs have God as a subject. God is doing the work. God's saying, you're not going to build a house for me. I will build a house for you. 
I do all these things. This is a picture of the grace of God, that he moves unilaterally to serve his people, that God does all things. In a way, I could say it, and I want you to take this with a grain of salt, but God doesn't need us. God's self-sufficient. He's entirely able to exist upon himself. We aren't. You and I can't exist without breath that's given to us by God. Even James says, don't say you're going to go to this city or that city and do business for a year and make a profit. He says, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. You and I don't. Do you know that you'll live tomorrow? Nobody here can affirm that, yes, absolutely, I'll be here tomorrow. By God's grace, most of you, many of you, perhaps all of you will. But none of us are self-sufficient. Only God is. God doesn't need us. And I think in a general way, he's telling David that. Maybe kind of like, I appreciate your intent, but I'll do the building here. Unless the Lord builds the house, its labors labor in vain. It's kind of a warning and encouragement here. It's kind of a warning. You know, the natural to men and women is this idea that we're going to return to God a favor or that we're going to earn God's favor. You see it in all the religions of the world. You see, all the religions of the world are built on a, some form of a quid pro quo basis. I'm going to do this for God because he's done this for me. Or I'm going to do this for God so that he'll do this for me. This is the way the ancient Near East worked. You know, they would build a temple for their gods and so that their gods might do kindnesses to them. And oftentimes we approach God this way, don't we? I mean, we feel closer to God when we do these things for him. Or perhaps we feel more distant from God when we haven't done those things. If you've had a night of great sin, you feel kind of distant and, and, and you fall back from God. You don't feel like you can approach him as well. Or if you've really been good at being righteous, then you, some, you somehow have a, a past to get closer to God. This is the way natural men and women think about God. But this teaches something different. And this is the warning. But it's also the encouragement that God's favor is unilateral towards us. His grace, his mercy come to us because he's kind, he's long-suffering, he's gracious to us. So we, we see that God had a, David had a plan. God said, no, I've got a better plan. And God's plan is built upon himself, and we see that. But then notice what David says to the plan. Look in verse 18 with me. Now we kind of do the third shift, right? From 18 to 29, we won't look at all the verses, but, but David says yes to the plan of God. Look what it says in 18. It says he went and sat before the Lord. Now, uh, nobody sits before God. Just, just for the record, the priests of the Old Testament, they were standing and they were working. But David goes in and sits before the Lord. And this isn't kind of a sitting like we sit, kind of a quasi-slouching, kind of like a recliner sitting. I'm just going to relax before God. That's not what he's saying here. I think it's a sitting like, if I don't sit, I might fall down. Kind of like when someone says, I've got really, I've got really great news for you. You better take a seat right now. It is so good, you better sit down. Because I don't know that you're going to be standing after I tell you. I, I think David is overwhelmed that he has just been told that from his body will come one, that from his line will come one who will be an eternal king over God's kingdom forever. He's meditating, he's worshiping, he's overwhelmed with the mercy of God. This is head-scratching amazement. In 19 he says, who am I? Oh Lord, who am I that you have brought me this far? 
You know, can't you imagine? I was just a shepherd from a no-name town, from a no-name family. And you have chosen me to be the one through whom the line, the Davidic line will be the one through whom the, the king of everything comes. Can you imagine that? Not only that, but he's amazed at the power of God. He says, this is a small thing in your eyes. This is a small thing in your eyes. He says, there is none like you. No one can, can be compared to you. So David is just worshiping. Don't you see now the heart of David and how it gave birth to the beautiful Psalms that we read? I mean, he is overwhelmed with God. And let me remind you, he hadn't seen any of it yet, right? All these things come after his days are fulfilled. He has to wait to die to see these things to be. But his faith is in the promise of God. His faith is in what God has said, that he's true to his word. What do we do with this? For us, we're not David. I already told you that when we studied Goliath and David, that we're not David. Let's not be David. We're the timid soldiers on the side. So how do we deal with this? Well, it does have implications for us. If you look in verse 19, he says this. David says, you have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come, about the future of the Davidic kingdom. He says, and this instruction is for mankind, O Lord God. There's a lesson here. Read slowly when you read. I have passed over that dozens of times. This is instruction. In other words, the promise given to David is instruction for us, all mankind. God is now going to deal with the world through this appointed son of David, Jesus Christ. That's the message. That this message, though given to David, has implications for the entire world. And so that involves us today. So what do we do with this message? How do we respond? Well, well, I think it calls forth for faith. Faith in the promises of God. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you may be antagonistic or ambivalent to the faith. I don't know. Uh, some people move between the two. Sometimes they don't care, sometimes they do. But this is a message that declares Jesus Christ is the king of the universe, that he will exercise a sovereign reign over all things. So we really can't be ambivalent. I guess we can be antagonistic, but, but I would warn you that there is a severity with God and there is a mercy with God. That there is a severity that this king will bring judgment. And so there is a need for us to reconcile, to, to somehow bridge the gap that exists between you and God. And the way we bridge that gap is through the Son. Uh, but there are other people that aren't maybe ambivalent or antagonistic, but some of us are just maybe confused as to what faith is. You would say, well, I do have faith. I, I believe, but there are counterfeits to faith that I see that exist in every church. And let me just highlight a few of those. Uh, a counterfeit faith, in other words, it, it operates like a faith, but it's really not. That is an intellectual faith. Many will believe in the propositions of the Christian faith. They'll believe in the, that Jesus came and that Jesus died and that Jesus rose again. There's an intellectual gathering of the propositions of the Christian faith, of the creed of the faith. But if that, if that knowledge of these things of God, if there's no fruit of joy or satisfaction or, or humility, then I would ask you to check the vitality of your faith. I'm not saying it's not there, but I would check it. You know, because James warns us, he says that the devils believe and they shudder. 
So he's, James is saying, listen, the devils have probably a more orthodox theology than many of us do. And they actually shudder. Most of us don't tremble before God. They do. So we want to make sure that if your faith is simply a creedal affirmation, I agree with these things, but there's no love, there's no joy, there's no desire to fight sin, there's no humility, there's no excitement over what God has done. I mean, can you believe God would lay out his plan for us without any expectation that we would feel some joy out of it? I, mean, I, I would think it would seem crazy. It'd be, it's not like reading the newspaper, you know, you read the headlines and you flip to the next page and you flip. No, 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 this is incredible news that we've been given. If it doesn't excite us to a degree, then, then is our faith simply intellectual? Or another counterfeit faith would be more of an inward faith, that we spend more time considering what we have done for God than what he has done for us. That when we think about our faith, we think about our relationship with God, and, and we're kind of, well, I haven't done this, 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 and this, or I have done these things. There's kind of an inward focus that we look to who we are before God rather than we look to what God has done for us. That would concern me as a counterfeit faith. So if you're ever asked the question, well, what would you say to God if he were to, you know, if you were to stand before God at the door of heaven and he would say, why ought I to let you in? You, well, I haven't killed anybody, I haven't raped anybody. You go to what you haven't done or the things that you have done. That would, that would evidence more of an inward faith rather than moving right to what Christ has done for us. Now, what we see in David is a biblical faith. Here's how we respond to this, that our faith is to be rooted in Christ. That means that our faith, our trust, our hope is rooted in what Christ has done, that he is the eternal son of David, that he has come and he has died for our sins. He's been raised to life. He's been seated at the right hand of God. Our hope for salvation rests upon what he alone has done for us that all of our hope, all of our dreams, all of our, our future desires have to be rooted in, no, I am with Christ, I am in Christ. Th that's the root of our faith. Now, that a faith that's rooted in Christ will bear fruit, right? A, a, a rooted faith will bear fruit. Some of the fruit that we see in David that we ought to see in ourselves, and this is kind of a moral inventory for you, or an inventory of faith, uh, some of the fruit that we ought to see is first um, a desire for obedience. You know, I, I, we, don't, we don't do anything for God to make him better, but, but being stunned by his love for us, we do want to walk in faith and repentance. We do want to strive for holiness. We, we do want to fight sin in life. The fighting of sin doesn't save us, but it does reflect that we understand how he saved us, that he bore our sins on a tree. You know, many people wonder about the conditionality of this covenant. Is it an unconditional covenant? Well, God does give unilateral promises. He does give promises. But does that mean that people participate in those promises without doing anything? You see that the various kings sinned and were disciplined. And what we understand about this covenant is God did give unilateral promises. But the various kings participated in the benefits of the covenant by their obedience the repentance, not that we're looking for sinlessness, but when we sin, when we walk in ways errant to God, that we repent and we ask God to forgive, but we want to walk in holiness. That's the fruit of having faith rooted in Christ. But not just, not just walking in holiness, but also joy, happiness, humility. Have you ever asked yourself the question, who am I that God you have brought me so far? 
Hey, that is the cry of the redeemed, is it not? Me and Carol and I were walking yesterday afternoon and we were praying and, and, and we just moved to that one verse. And we thought, I mean, if you've known me for a long time, well, if you've known me for a real long time, you'd agree with us. God, why did you bring me so far? Who am I that you would have saved me from the, the paths of destruction that I was walking in? Do you wonder over God's mercy in your life? Uh, the Christian wonders. The Christian says, if he did not save me, I would be ultimately on some path of self-destruction. It may be moral and it may be financially secure, but it's a path of destruction. Do you wonder, does it bring you joy and humility? It, it, it mediates any sort of self-satisfaction because I look to him who's done these things. Or a longing, another fruit of faith rooted in Christ would be longing. Do you long for Christ? There ought to be an increasing longing. Don't we want a king? I mean, don't we want a good king? I mean, they say the best form of government is a benevolent dictatorship. We want a good king that will come back and give. We see the chaos in our world. We see the chaos in Charlottesville. We see the chaos in North Korea. We want a king to come back and to establish justice and righteousness. Don't we want that with every administration? Isn't there some hope that maybe this one will be better than the next one? And by the way, we'll always have that hope until Christ. Do you long for him, either in death? or that he would return. That's the, that's the mark of a person who has faith rooted in Christ. We want to see him. We even sang that. We long for that day when this passing world is over. Don't we want to see him face to face? Don't you want to thank the one who has fulfilled that covenant for us? That when God looked at him, he said, this is my beloved son with him. I am well pleased. And because we're in him, he is well pleased in us. And, and, then, and then last, I would say another fruit of faith rooted in Christ is a desire for the nations, a concern for the nations. You know, this is a missiological text, we say. This text has implications for missions. In other words, this is a text that all mankind need to hear of Christ coming to fulfill the covenant with David and, and that he is the eternal king and that he is on an eternal throne over an eternal kingdom. That we as a church have a responsibility to declare. You know, the, the problem with Israel in the Old Testament was that they mimicked the world. They were to reflect God to the world, but they imitated the world, and therefore they lost their witness. We, the church, are not to adapt all the principles and just pull them into the world. No, we're to reflect God to the world in grace and holiness that we have. We are to have a concern that if you've been delivered, if you with David can say, who am I that you brought me this far? We are to be concerned that there is a role that we're to play in the various relationships that we have within our family, within our community, with those that we work, that there is a concern that we as a church ought to have a missiological concern that others would know the greatness of Christ. So this is a beautiful text. David had a plan and God said no to the plan. Now, do you think David's complaining about the no now? I don't think so. So David had a plan in those first seven verses. But then we see God's plan is great in verses 8 all the way through 17. Read back through that passage. It's a critical passage in the Old Testament. And then we see David respond to God's plan. And he responds in faith even though he hasn't seen it. Folks, our faith is rooted in that which we haven't seen. But we will see as he has 
now seen. So let's take a minute and, and, and thank God for this unilateral promise. Let's take a minute and perhaps this has admonished you if you've been slack and slothful in your approach to Christ, or hopefully it will strengthen you if you become faint-hearted. If you feel weak, I pray that it will help you. So let's take a minute now, then I'll pray silently.